Welcome to the Lehigh at NASDAQ Center podcast. In this series, Disruptive Engineers, we'll be hosting conversations with industry leaders who are working on cutting edge technologies in quantum computing, cybersecurity, green technology, artificial intelligence, and more. I'm your host, Samantha Walravens. In the final episode of our series, I'm sitting down with Kathleen Egan, the co-founder and CEO of Ecomedes to discuss the green technology market and how her company is working to outfit buildings with cost-effective and sustainable building materials. I'd like to welcome to our conversation today, Kathleen Egan, who is the founder and CEO of Ecomedes, a digital platform that helps outfit buildings with cost-effective and sustainable building materials. We're going to discuss her founding of this company. We're going to discuss what it means for businesses to be green and for all of us to be green and what we can all do to sort of take part in the sustainability movement. Kathleen has her undergraduate degree from Lehigh and an MBA from Harvard Business School. And she's had an interesting career, which we will discuss in a few minutes, but she's really passionate about climate change, oceans, and equality. So we'll get into that as well. Kathleen, welcome and thank you for being here with us. Thank you. Good to see you, Samantha. So there's really three topics I'd like to cover today. One is your background and what inspired you to start a business in sustainability. And two, what Ecomedes does and how this fits in the bigger picture of sustainability and environmentalism. And three, sort of the concept of social entrepreneurship and how you go about building a mission-driven business that combines capitalism and sustainability. So with that, let us start with your background. So you graduated from Lehigh with a degree in industrial engineering. Actually, you spent some time in the fashion industry. So tell us about your background and how that led to what you're doing now um, with Ecomedes. So yeah, I kind of went through my career, I'd say in, in three buckets. First, I was a consultant and I worked in what is now called Accenture. From consulting, I went into a client and did like the enterprise tech in the fashion space. Uh, I worked for Chanel and then for Calvin Klein and, and basically installed the first generation of technology to do all the, all the different functions of the business. Then got an MBA and started working at startups. So ever since then, uh, I've been an entrepreneur. I went back to sort of bigger tech at Oracle for five years, but mostly since then have been doing entrepreneurial stuff. And then you know, within the entrepreneurial stuff, most of that time has been spent in what is roughly called retail tech or, you know, e-commerce would fall under it, but also like the in-store pricing across the platforms, competitive intelligence, that, that kind of stuff. And decided that a couple of things came together for me to really make the transition to working on um, sustainability full-time. And I had been working on it part-time as I live at the beach and surf and it's very present some of the impact on the planet when you're a surfer um, because of seeing plastic pollution, water quality, runoff, all different kinds of uh, species extinction, entanglement. We could go on and on, (laughs) but all those issues, plus the president that was elected in 2016, plus more thinking generationally after having a child, you know, made me decide to not do environmental stuff after work, but to make it the main job. So that has started what is now the chapter I'm in, which I believe will probably be roughly the chapter I'm in from now on, which is tapping into, you know, startups and entrepreneurial activities in the area of what is roughly called climate tech, but that is not necessarily fully 
you know, describing it all because carbon is not the only thing that this, you know, this, this group's even combating. Got it. And tell us how Ecomedes works. Can you just tell us what the problem was you were trying to solve when you started the company? So my business partner was a consultant, a different kind of consultant than me, right? I was working on like tech for fashion companies. He was working on building buildings and doing the consulting work to help the buildings be green. So when he started his career, LEED was started. LEED was the first standard to look across all the components of a building and say, you know, how do I measure these apples to oranges to bananas, right? So it created a formula that rates buildings. It was complex. So consultants started running that formula. That's what he did for a bunch of different buildings. And it was tedious. And the data was locked in PDFs and it was just a lot of busy work. So he started automating the solution set. That has grown into the catalog that we have today. And essentially I joined him to take it from a tool that was helping consultants to a tool that could power both sides of the market. The buyer side who are you know, architects, designers, building owners, and the seller side who include manufacturers across all the different categories that could go into a building. So we're a SaaS solution, which means there's an annual subscription. About half of our subscription comes from the seller side, manufacturers like Herman Miller, Interface, manufacturers of drywall, of plumbing, right? All look around your building. All, all the stuff you see, those are our customers on the seller side. And then the buyer side, our biggest customer is the government, the U.S. federal government specifically, because they do a lot of the cleanup through the EPA and the USDA and Superfund, right? So they are the scientists who see the impact and largely have to take care of it. They've translated that into a set of criteria that helps align the building purchases with less impact on the environment. What is the business imperative to build a, a building, a facility that has all these building materials and products that are actually certified, as you said, in, in these various ways, why would they do that? I mean, I also, you know, there's a myth, you know, an idea that it's cost prohibitive. It's too expensive to yeah. go green. There's multiple so motivations um, and code is, is probably the biggest one, right? Mm -hmm. So regulatory code that differs by building, building type and differs by geo is, is the number one motivator. There's a piece also around fines that you could put in the regulatory bucket that are usually related to energy. Historically, those fines haven't been meaningful enough to change behavior. That's sort of changing. Another bucket is the team. And, and there's a couple of dynamics on the team. You've got executives with vision, right, who, who are pushing kind of top down um, an ESG agenda. And then you have bottom up, uh, next gen, are probably not going to tolerate as much as I tolerated, right, on environmental, social, or governance. So, so you have the talent of tomorrow driving companies in this direction. Probably the biggest motivator is the third bucket, which is financial. And you get customers asking for it, right? So it's a, a revenue growth and revenue protection, or you get investors asking for it. And that's the whole ESG investment movement where there's more capital that wants to invest in companies that are not, you know, mortgaging the future to line the pockets of today. So, so that investment shows up in both, you know, equities like stock prices and in debt and, and things like sustainable bonds that are emerging and that the NASDAQ exchange is a pioneer of, right? And it's something like, I think, I think we all should 
learn more about um, how, how to turn up that motivation. I, I think that's the biggest motivator that can play a role in saving the planet. The other two are, are important and, and they're good. And I think there's multiplier effects, but it's, it's the financial component that's really going to drive it. So in your view, what companies are getting it right with sustainability and what are they doing that other companies can model? I mean, there's a big, a wide range. You know, having a diverse board is probably the most important thing companies can do because historically the boards weren't diverse and that kind of got us where we are. So ch- changing the leadership profile, right, to, to be more representative, maybe think longer term. I, I think that can be more important than any one thing, right? Make the machine kind of work better. Being data-driven and, and starting to account for things, measure things. You really can't do anything without some level of transparency. And the metrics and what to measure is very confusing. So sort of measurement, reporting, and verification. And I know a lot of companies are starting to look at carbon removal and offsets, right, to achieve carbon neutrality. And that's an area where the measurement, the reporting, the verification is still pretty nascent and inconsistent. But even in tracking your own carbon and and tiers into your supply chain, it's an investment to get the measurement turned on. And, And I think that's probably one of the most important things. Then the next, I think it's interesting, some companies, you know, like Microsoft are making really big claims into the future on bets that the technology doesn't exist yet to deliver. And that is influencing the whole market to say, okay, this is more urgent than our current technology actually can can deliver on. So what what do we got to do? We got to make it a priority and we got to use what's called SBT, science-based targets, to work into some, you know, net zero goals and and really, you know, get get on on a rapid path to completely, you know, remove carbon from the system. So those are the ones I think that that are moving the market. And I think it's also you got to do everything to get to that goal that they've set or, or some other big companies have set. They're going to have to do it all, both big capitally intensive projects like solar and other renewable transmission and carbon sequestration, which is turning out to be very expensive. And also, uh, you know, reducing what you are doing. And then the complexity is, well, what about the trade-offs? Because you could have something that has lower carbon, took lower carbon to make, but it's more toxic. And now that's in the the environment where people are working. So, you know, there's like a planet people trade-off. It's a lot of functional areas that there's a complete lack of expertise, you know, and and the science is still shaky, but I think it's important to, you know, arm yourself with data uh, and move forward. So there are many different ways, as you said, that businesses can practice and implement sustainability goals. We were talking earlier and you said that reducing carbon emissions really gets all the attention, right? But that's not enough to stop global warming. I I would say it's it's kind of even recent that it's getting all the attention. For a long time, it didn't didn't get nearly attention, but it is a metric, especially when you look at a building and you have so many, that's why LEED was formed, is to try to balance out all the different factors. Carbon is, is getting attention because it's a little easier to add up. The way they do is they take other gases that cause global warming and convert it to a carbon equivalent. And then that carbon equivalent can be represented as a a GWP, global warming potential. And then you pair that with some unit of measure. So per square foot of flooring or per each, if you're a chair, right? And that math 
you can envision. That's a lot easier than like, well, what about toxicity? What about, okay, it's not toxic in the building, but the factory that makes it is really toxic. And there's a dead area of the ocean and a high cancer rate in that community. You know, how, how do you factor that in? So it is true that carbon is coming more in focus, especially from the embedded perspective. You know, you have operational carbon, like how much watts does something draw? The, you know, the plant making the energy, right, is making carbon. But then there's the embedded carbon or embodied carbon, which was extracting the minerals from the earth, turning those minerals into metal, you know, putting it in, into the supply chain on a boat and a train, um, however it gets to the job site. So th those are two aspects of carbon that you can actually sort of you know, bring together. It's a neat metric, but it's, it's still early. It doesn't just turn on a dime. I do know the government's working on bringing carbon into their criteria, but you know, it's, it's new, relatively speaking. Yeah. So there are all these different factors in play, right? So it's car reducing carbon emissions, but there's also you know, some of the other factors, reducing waste, adopting clean energy, conserving water. You know, California is going into another big drought. Talk about some of these imperatives and how big of a role does your focus on sustainable building materials, how big of a role does that play in this like more holistic picture of all the different factors we need to, to work on to reduce global warming and save our, our planet? So back of the envelope, buildings represent about 40% of emissions. Okay. So then you could break into that amount for buildings and you have, you know, residential, single owner, residential, multifamily, commercial, industrial logistics. We work with most of the buildings. We don't really target single family homes, um, but we do a fair amount of work in multifamily dwellings and, and a, a lot of like the green movement of micro green, you know, community-based um, multifamily dwellings. So, and then within the building, you, you have impact across, you know, I think we have nine icons in our system and each product has icons that tell you, do they have transparency information about that dimension? So just, you know, the ones you said, wastewater, energy, recyclability, toxin, eight or nine. So, you know, trying to point out which items have which impact is, is what, what we're after. The emissions one, you figure 40%, Toxicity is hard to compare, like to compared to what, right? Compared to being outside, well, the air is not really clean either. Mm -hmm. So like what contribution do buildings make to the problem of the toxic risks, risk to human and human cells and human health? You know, pro probably pretty significant. The other big categories would be your food, right? And your products that you put on your body. So I, I'd say it's, it's, it's pretty significant on that dimension. Any one of the, the nine areas, you know, you'll find that the commercial products being bought and sold for buildings, which is a $1 trillion a year market in the U.S., is um, a piece of all of them. But, you know, I think that 40% is, is a pretty good, pretty good guideline for all of them. So back to the companies that are getting it right, you know, I was reading about, you know, Unilever has a big, um, you know, environmental imperative. And you talked about ESG, which is, I think, believe environmental, social and governance. So companies are really focused on this. So tell us, you know, which companies are getting it right in your view and what are they doing? I mean, I, th I think it, it shifts around. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, Unilever is repeatedly recognized um, for their environmental leadership. And I think the, the, the businesses they're in, consumer packaged goods, it's sort of like, well, they're ahead of the pack, but the whole pack is pretty bad. And there are other companies, Kraft, Mondelez, Coke, Pepsi, right? They're very reliant on plastic 
in, in their products. And they're, they're sometimes reliant on ingredients that aren't really good for people, but, but sell stuff. I think it's great that Unilever kind of leads in that direction. Look at the whole, the whole pack, you know, needs to do way more, <laughs> way faster. And I, I remember when I think it was Pepsi took one of their plastic bottles and reduced the amount of plastic just through a design change, right? And reduced the plastic by 30% and put a, a, a sign on the bottle that said this bottle, 30% less plastic. And it was sort of the first time that industry even admitted that less plastic might be a good thing. And that moved the needle forward. So Personally, I, I don't work for a big company because I don't think any of them are really <laughs> doing a good job. And so, you know, smaller companies are, are going to drive the innovation. Now, that being said, we have customers like Herman Miller. Their design ethos has always been sustainable from the beginning, right? It's like baked into their brand. They still have to mine stuff. They still have to do all that. And that is impact, but they're incredibly transparent about it, right? So, so bringing that data to the customer and then moving the industry forward, kind of like Unilever, like really pulling the furnishing industry out of what, for the most part, didn't pay much attention to sustainability or even the impact on people in terms of off-gassing. Even ergonomics is, is relatively new within that industry. And it's you know a whole team of standards and companies kind of, kind of pulling that industry forward. So, so those are the, the leaders that I think are um, inspiring. Isn't just like what they're doing right, but they're, they're moving the market. Yeah, but so, so one of the obstacles, one of the big obstacles to sustainability is that it's often seen as being too expensive for businesses. So solar and wind power, are very expensive. So you did a study with, I believe there were Lehigh and Notre Dame students involved on the cost of going green. Tell, tell us about that study and what you found. Sure. We pulled some data on the global warming potential in a couple of different categories. We did monitors, task seating, which is the number one item purchased from the furnishing category, um, and LED lights for, for a given typeset and brightness, et cetera. Okay, and we looked at, well, how much carbon was emitted. And when they track the carbon, it's in a document called the EPD, Environmental Product Declaration. And they track the carbon across stages of the life cycle from extraction and manufacturing through supply chain. Sometimes they track it cradle to gate. And that just means like to the door of where it gets used or cradle to grave, which is the actual full life cycle. So you start getting into the complexity of, of, of different measurements. But we pulled that out, normalized across different products, got the B2C pricing because B2B pricing is actually pretty opaque. You know, it's all volume based, special account pricing. But we looked at the B2C price as a proxy and we thought, well, yeah, the more expensive stuff probably is the less carbon stuff. But what we found was actually a slight reverse correlation that the more expensive stuff actually had more carbon. And it just was really hard to, for someone to even put this together to figure out what's the apples to apples carbon. So in, in some ways, when you know, we started trying to save energy and do energy conservation, people just turned the lights off at night. Right. And it was the industrial engineers and some folks at Lehigh, right, who were involved in things like the Hawthorne effect, which was like, make the light brighter to get more productivity. So everybody turned up and, and put more light. And then just by turning it off at night, you could make a huge savings. That's where we are with carbon, um, as far as the embedded carbon goes. It hasn't really been a focus. There hasn't been a lot of transparency. It's still only about 1% of products or less 
even in our database, it's only about 4% and we have the most sustainable products on earth. So it's a metric that's, that's coming out, but we do like to bust the myth that the more expensive thing and the more sustainable thing are always the same thing. You talked a little bit about how you measure sustainability. So you talked about the global warming potential of a product or material. Tell us how you go about measuring the global warming potential, GWP, of a product or material. We get it from a document that as consultant probably, or usually a third party, has done a process to measure it for a company. So I'll, I'll give you an example. My friend is the CFO of a little company called Havelock Wool. And they make insulation, very sustainable insulation from discarded wool from New Zealand. And they wanted to get their global warming potential. So they had to order an EPD and a third party called um, Sustainable Minds, which is a partner of ours, goes out, visits their factory, looks at the map, gets the location in New Zealand, pays several thousand dollars to a consultant to run that and then break down each step of the manufacturing. And if there's components of the manufacturing, right, they follow those and come up with how many tons of carbon were expended in that whole process. They also look at, and I'm not a chemist, but there's three other chemicals, I think SO2, NO2, um, and methane. And they have like six areas of impact across six or seven phases of the product. And so what we look for is the final. And then we try to make it apples to apples. Like, did you include the carbon equivalent from the SO2 and the NO2 from the methane? Well, let's make the same approach, you know, across all the products. So you're a commercial builder, you're working on an office building. What are some of the materials that you should be looking at that are eco-friendly? Like I was reading about, you know, bamboo floors are much more environmentally friendly than other types like a walnut or maple, cork, concrete. Um, actually, sheep wool insulation you were discussing is actually very expensive. But what are some of the materials that the businesses should be looking at as they, as they build or remodel? And so I think what, what we look at more than like, what's the hot material du jour is what's the criteria that could drive systematic change across all the decisions over, over time. So, you know, this would lead you to a bunch of flooring that would absolutely um, include bamboo stuff. And you would sort of start navigating as the buyer, either into brands, we sort by popularity and product name on our own site. We actually sort by impact score. That's where we're focusing more, more on the criteria. At the same time, we do add customers that are doing really cool, innovative stuff. We've had several furnishing brands and some of the innovative stuff they're doing is A, being really transparent with the toxicity and B, getting offsets, like actually measuring their global warming potential on each item and then buying offsets to have a carbon neutral item. Another client that I don't think the logo's even on this yet is um, that we just added is pretty fascinating. It's called Eco Safety. And they're making paint stains and adhesives, which is typically a pretty toxic category. You know, that's where when you're talking about off-gassing, some of it comes from the thing itself, you know, the drywall, the flooring, but a lot of it comes from the glue and, and the things in between. So they have made all these things with completely no toxins and using bio-based materials and commensurate performance levels, commensurate price. It's like, why would you buy the toxic stuff ever again? There's another client that we haven't signed up yet. They're making concrete and, and concrete's a really 
interesting category because if you break down, there's this famous diagram called the spaghetti diagram. And it shows you kind of the inputs and, and the outputs and where it goes and, and connects it like spaghetti. And when you look at that for a building, a big chunk of the carbon comes from the concrete because to make concrete, you have to heat stuff really, really hot to make fly ash, to make the concrete. And that is a ton of energy. So they're making concrete without any heat, taking the, the, the most big piece of a building's carbon impact like out and, and doing it through like a, a biomimicry of something that grows like a calcite or a, a coral. And they could just grow it. And it's not structural concrete yet. It's more like tiles, decorative tiles for a wall or, you know, landscaping, but they're making it bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger. And so that whole big piece of heating and, and trucking, right? They can even grow it in place. They do some things for footings in marine environments. Like they don't have to dig a hole and get all the water out, right? They just lay it on where the thing is attaching and it grows around it um, and becomes a, a custom concrete footing. So the amount of innovation in the product area is, is massive. And what we're trying to do is really take the buyer demand and drive that even farther. The more buyers that can demonstrate they care about embedded carbon, the more biomasons we're gonna have out there making stuff without carbon. So let's talk a little bit about the impact we can make as individuals. A bunch of students had questions this week on, you know, we're told to reuse, recycle, reduce. You know, I have four kids and that's what we you know, hear all the time. Mom, we have to compost and, you know, use paper straws and recycle our plastic. How big of a role does the individual play on mitigating climate change? And how would you weigh the individual impact versus corporate yeah, business there's, impact? There's different schools of thought on this. I think that regardless of the amount of impact that an individual has, it is part of everyone's mental health to do everything they can do about this. Um, because at some point, not too distant future, I think that the data is going to become more and more clear and people are going to be really depressed. Um, because they didn't, they didn't do their part. So almost regardless of, of how important it is, it's important for each person. There's a lot of science that shows the individual impact is certainly not sufficient and maybe not that meaningful in the big scheme of things. And so if you listen to somebody like Bert McKibben, who founded 350.org, right, he would say that the biggest thing students can do is encourage their university to get the endowment out of fossil fuel investments. And that that alone will have way more impact than carrying your lunch in your reusable bag and, you know, all the stuff that we, we all do because it's um, the right thing to do. So it goes back to the financial piece of this. And if all of a sudden investment capital comes with like strings attached that are related to transparency and sustainability, it could move things much faster then it takes for the consumer behavior to travel through the market into the signal, right? And have those companies really change in, in, in a way. There, there's also even a more, I'd say, dark school of thought that is even at the commercial level, even the B2B companies, much of what we're doing is insufficient, possibly insignificant, and actually a, a distraction. And that the big changes that have to be made related to moving off fossil fuel and the emissions that come from it, it requires everything we have, you know, just working on that. So someone working on ocean acidification or human toxicity in buildings, right? So some people would say, you just need to put that on hold and go fix the fossil fuel business. And that kind of kind of goes back to that university endowment thing. That is a form of protesting outside of big oil is taking away 
their um, university funding. And it's smart because a lot of other money, bigger money even than university endowments, follows university endowment money, especially prestigious universities. So that's probably part of the reality, I, I would say, on the reduce, reuse, recycle. All the R's aren't created equally. You know, reduce is probably the most important thing, you know, across the whole economic, whether it's B2B, B2C. Reuse is, is great. The scientists who studied the impact of plastic on, on the environment would say, you know, reusing it is good, but eventually these toxins are still getting into the environment. So you've kind of delayed it, but it's, it's still, you know, so, some percentage is still getting into the um, environment. And, and recycle is probably, I would probably at this point, put it squarely in the distraction bucket. Recycling was never really going to work, and it was put in place so, so that big companies could keep doing what they're doing. Not that there's not a lot of well-meaning and, and helpful recycling programs, but what, why did we need to put water in a plastic bottle in the first place, right? If we just had clean water coming out of the tap. I want to sort of shift perspective now into more of a discussion on entrepreneurship and your journey as an entrepreneur. You're a social entrepreneur. So your business combines capitalism and sustainability. Talk about that. Like, what does it mean to be a mission-based company that where your goal is really to change the environment, but also to make money? I think it's the future. I, I, I think it's hard to define it. You know, there are plenty of people I know here in Silicon Valley who are very purpose-driven and passionate about ad tech, right? So how do you define somebody's purpose? It's, 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 it's sort of in the eye of the beholder. What I've, I've seen in the climate area and the social area is that there's more and more capital for it, but it's also still the very early days. You know, we, we have a lot of people that we manage data for that are um, nonprofit trade orgs, right? That, that we don't charge all of them, right? And, and that you might not do if you weren't like trying to move a movement forward. So th there's a lot of um, different decisions you make when you're part of a movement that you think is important. And it's actually a movement that absolutely takes for-profit government and nonprofits working together. So what I, I hope it does though, and I, th I think this is happening, is I'm getting an unfair advantage of top talent. Because the top talent of tomorrow cares about this and wants to do something like this. So while our capitalization is still, you know, as lean as a startup can be, I think I'm over-indexing on the kind of people I get to attract. Thank you for joining the Lehigh at NASDAQ Center podcast. The Lehigh at NASDAQ Center is a collaboration between Lehigh University and the NASDAQ Entrepreneurial Center. Our mission is to educate, connect, and inspire the next generation of global entrepreneurial leaders. To learn more about us, go to nasdaqcenter.lehigh.edu and follow us on Instagram. We are at Lehigh NASDAQ Center. I hope you enjoyed the Disruptive Engineers series as much as I did. Make sure to subscribe to the Lehigh at NASDAQ Center podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast content. Stay tuned for our next series.